From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I'm joined by my co-host and producer Craig Williams and also by our special guest David Younger who's the author of the new book, Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment. Now, David is joining us from the United Kingdom. So, David, let us know if we need to speak more loudly due to our length of distance. I say the, the Atlantic must be quite quite calm today because I can hear you fine. Perfect. I'll say that way. That's wonderful. So welcome to Connecting with Walt. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's, it, we are delighted. And you are our first guest on Connecting with Walt. So, uh, I don't know, Craig, do we have like a button or something that we give first guests? Uh, we have absolutely nothing. Uh, we'll try to see if we can <laughs> send you away, though, with a lovely uh, gift basket or something. I, I don't know what the standard is for podcast gifts. And a box of rice Cerrone, the San Francisco treat. Oh, it'd be from you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So, Craig, how are you today? Oh, I'm not bad. So I'm kind of thrown off uh, just uh, by the time we're actually recording this. So typically you and I are on late at night, but it's actually it's a normal time of day for me for once. Yeah, yeah, it's actually I, I can see daylight and that's but where David is. It, of course, is at the end of the day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty late for me. Yes. So, so uh, anyway, so, um, so yeah, David is coming on because he, we are transitioning into where we're going to start getting into the actual construction of um, the Magic Kingdom in our upcoming episodes. And, and David is helping us transition um, to, to those topics. So in our previous episode, Up the Creek, Craig and I talked about how vitally important it was for Walt Disney Productions to establish the Reedy Creek Improvement District to construct Project Florida. And after their plans languished for a year after Walt's death, the Imagineers at Wet Enterprises were finally able to get back to their planning for the theme park and the resorts after the Reedy Creek legislation was passed and confirmed by the Florida State Supreme Court. So David Younger is joining us on this very special episode of Connecting with Walt to talk about the process of theme park design. And David, would you tell our listeners about yourself and how you came to be an expert in theme park design? Um, well, I'm, very, I'm very glad that you give me that title. Mm. Um, I think really for me, I, I guess like a lot of your listeners, it was Disney that made me fall in love with theme park design. But I guess unlike most of your listeners, it was Disneyland Paris that did that for me. Because um, being in the United Kingdom, I was, uh, I was five years old when Disneyland Paris opened. And I really think that's, that was kind of the perfect age to first visit a Disney theme park for me. And especially with it being Disneyland Paris, which at the time was, I, well, I think it's, it's still the most beautiful Disney theme park in the world. But at the time, it was just 
all of the hits that went into Disneyland and into the Magic Kingdom and into Tokyo Disneyland all in one place. And it just, it captured my imagination perfectly. So I, I, I was one of those kids that always knew they wanted to go into theme park design. Um, see, I, I, I can still remember um, drawing theme park maps um, of my own theme parks when I was, when I was seven years old. And, and just, it was, it was always on my mind. So is that one of your ultimate goals is to design a whole theme park of oh, your that own? Would be, that would be a dream. <laughs> I, I've got lots of ideas, but yeah, that, that would be a dream. So in a little while, we're going to get more into, uh, you know, into advice that you would have for somebody who wants to get into theme park design. But what path did you take in order to learn about theme park design? Well, actually, for me, because Disney's really, it's, I wanted to be, I wanted to work for Disney. Just at some point in my life, I wanted to work for Disney. But being British, that's quite a really difficult thing to do. Um, so when I dis- when I decided that I was I was going to go to university, I decided I wasn't going to do theme park design. I thought that's not realistic. It's not going to happen in the UK. I'll instead do film. Film's a bit more broader. There's lots of different uh, things I could apply that to. Theme park design. I'm gonna. It's a nice hobby to have, but it's not something I'm going to be able to do for a career. But then what happened is whilst I was at university doing um, film, in my second year, the opportunity came up to do uh, an international exchange program. And all I knew is that I was going to be able to go to a university in the United States. And I thought, oh, that's great. I love the United States. Even if I'm not near Disney Park, perhaps I can take a a, a flight out there and go for a few days or, or something like that. When I found out the university I was going to, it was Cal State University Long Beach, which is, I think it's either the first, the closest, or the second closest the, uh, university there is to Disneyland Resort California. Just, just purely by chance, just purely by chance, I could, I could drive from the university, from the places I, place I was living, to Disneyland in 20 minutes. And that was just a dream come true for me. So what would happen is I'd, I'd have lessons in the morning where we'd learn about, say, the three-act structure in film or about scenic design in film and then go to Disneyland in the afternoon or in the evening and I'd begin to see these same techniques that I'm learning about for film existing within, within Disneyland. Well, and I, that, kind of, that kind of triggered something for me. Well, well, and that's interesting because when Disneyland was designed, they designed it from a filmmaker's point of view. Well, exactly, yeah. So what, what I ended up doing in our third year, after I came back from California for my final year at university, um, in the UK we have to do a, a third-year dissertation, which is a 10,000-word paper uh, on just really on something that we enjoy, that we can apply to, we can apply to our degree. Um, and so other people on the film course were writing about Casablanca or about Gone with the Wind. I did my 10,000-word paper on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. <laughs> which, which became a film. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> it did, yeah. Um, but So what, what I did is I, I approached Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride, like a film, and I analyzed it from the perspective of the three-act structure and of the scenic design of it and, and the plot and, and everything like that. And that I... I enjoyed that so much i kind of realized gosh there's got to be more to this this is this is there's there's so much here and i had all of the disney books of course i had the walt disney imagineering book i had the um designing disneyland book um i had all of these things but they didn't quite 
they weren't quite what I wanted. I, I wanted a, a full textbook on how to design a theme park. And after the experience of writing this dissertation and enjoying it so much, I kind of realized, well, okay, if this book isn't out there already, I'll write it myself. And that's what you did. That's what I did. <laughs> yes. And, and we're going to talk more about your book, which, which is remarkable. And what, what, a couple of things that I want to talk about is that, uh, you know, well, one of the things that what was interesting is when I was talking to my wife, Carol, about the show is, and I was talking about theme park designers and all and design, is she had no idea that companies other than Disney's Imagineering did theme park design. But this is, but actually, even though Disney might have started it, there are many, many companies and many opportunities out there for theme park designers, aren't there? There, there absolutely are. There are hundreds of theme park design companies. And really, Disney, Disney definitely established the industry. Um, but you have to remember that so many of these Imagineers went off and started their own companies as well. So there are loads of companies out there who have the talent of Walt Disney Imagineering. And some of them work for uh, theme parks that are, that are um, operating, like Universal Studios has Universal Creative. And Merlin Entertainments, which own the Legoland theme parks, they have Merlin Making Magic, which is their own in-house company. But as well as that, as well as that there are hundreds of other independent companies um, like Thinkwell and BRC Imagination Arts, which even, even Disney will hire some of these companies for certain things because they have expertise that Disney might not have. Right. And I, I know a lot of Disney theme park goers know of Garner Holt. Because he's, he's yeah. designed a lot of the uh, the Disneyland and Disney World attractions, the more recent exactly. ones. Exactly. That's the thing. If you if you want animatronics in your theme park, you want to go to the best of the best, and that's who that's what Garner Holt's company does. Right. So so during the course of our conversation, my experience is really limited to experiencing Disney theme parks. So so for our listeners that are probably Disney park fans. My examples are all going to be around Disney's. David's expertise, however, is well beyond the boundaries of a Disney theme park. So don't be surprised if he starts talking to us and giving us examples about other theme parks. And I know some of us would never dream of setting foot in another theme park other than Disney, but uh, you might be surprised to know that uh, some, some theme parks do a really good job at theming and, and attraction development and david will probably tell us a little about those other parks today and maybe um you know sweat our appetites so um for visiting them so david maybe the first thing that we need to understand is what is the difference between an amusement park and a theme park okay so this is this is a this is a distinction that i'm really uh really um that i think is really important um but basically, to, but to answer it, you have to go back to what is theme design. And typically, what, what we define theme design is, um, it would be a dimensional story experience unified by a theme. And that sounds pretty grand, but if I just break it down. So by dimensional, I mean that it's, it's, it's in a physical space. So unlike film, which is on a screen, or a book, which is in words... A theme, a theme design, you, you can reach out and touch it. You, you can walk along the cobblestones. You can feel the, the wind in your hair. It's, it's, it's dimensional. Then story. Now, obviously, with Disney, all, all Disney fans know the importance of story. 
But the story can be as little as you are in another place or another time. That's all it has to be. But but basically, there is there is a level of uh, of narrative that's added to the design that removes it from what it actually is. And then experience means that everything that happens to you whilst you're part of this is part of the product. Um, so even the, the, from the, the, the tiniest thing right the way up to a whole roller coaster, it, it's all important. Everything has to be choreographed and thought of. And then all of that is then unified by a theme. Um, and we'll, we'll probably get into what a, what a theme is later because it's not quite as simple as the, the typical definition we'd give it. But what you do with that dimensional story experience is you can overlay that onto all sorts of different things. So a, uh, let's say, a, a hotel can be made into a themed hotel by giving it a story, by changing it. So you're not uh, staying in the, the middle of the Las Vegas desert. You're actually staying in the middle of Venice and you can go and ride on the gondolas. Um, and you can go and look at, at all the statues. There's that, there's that level of abstraction. And the difference between a theme park and an amusement park is that theme design is applied to the amusement park. So we might build roller coasters, but it's not meant to be a roller coaster anymore. It's meant to be a bobsled run down the Matterhorn, or it's meant to be a T-train going through the Himalayas that's get, that gets attacked by the Yeti, or it's supposed to be a, a limousine ride through Los Angeles trying to get you to a concert on time. Um, and that's what, that's what makes it unique. It's, it's, it's just like um, Imagineers say, it's like stepping into a film. That's exactly what it is. You're, you're no longer uh, walking into a, into a regular restaurant. You're walking into a restaurant that's, that's in the middle of Polynesia. Uh, you're not going on, a, on a, a mechanical spinner ride anymore. You're um, sitting on the back of Dumbo and flying through the air with a magic feather. Excellent. And, and I think that's what, what we like about about theme parks. I mean, what a lot of people say about Disneyland and Disney World is one of the reasons they enjoy it is because it allows them to escape the realities of the real world for a period of time. But then there was a quote in your book from John Hinch that really jumped out at me. And it's, he said, the parks are not about escapism. They are about reassurance that things can be done and right, that you can talk to a stranger in a public place that a public place can be clean, that you can come out of these experiences and saying, wow, I feel, I, I do feel good. I feel optimistic about the future, optimistic about the world. So what effect do you think, in your opinion, is a theme park designed to have upon a guest? Is it escapism is, or is it more what John Hinch said? Well, well, really, it depends on the themed entertainment that the designer is trying to present. So, I mean, even with that definition that uh, John Hench gives, of course, there is an element of escapism. You don't have to worry about your day-to-day job. Um, but there's also this fun, the story, the spectacle, this thrill, this play. There's um, the sociability, just going with your friends and family. All of these are important. But what John Hench is getting at there is that it, it, this comes down to that definition of theme that I mentioned. So if I was to like ask you what theme means in a theme park, most people would say pirates or, or princesses and fairy tales, uh, cowboys and things like that. But if I was to ask you what the theme of Moby Dick is, you, you wouldn't say whales. 
you, you, you'd probably say something like the, the, um, the power of obsession or mm-hmm. man versus nature. And, and that's a distinction there. So when theme park designers are talking about theme, they actually mean two different things. The, the pirates and princesses, that's, that's the manifestation theme. That's the physicality of it. But in addition to that, there's a dramatic theme. And that dramatic theme is it's just like a literary theme. It's how is it supposed to make you feel? What is it making you think about? And for Disneyland, lots of people may say, well, what's Disneyland's theme? Is it Disney? Well, not really, because when Disneyland opened, 60% of the attractions weren't based around Disney properties. They were original. And then you might say, well, maybe Disneyland's theme is America, but then it's got a European castle as its centerpiece. And really, John Hench spells it out. Disneyland's theme, just like Magic Kingdom themes and all of the castle parks that Disney has, that theme is reassurance. It's meant to make you feel that the world is all right after all, that people are good and kind and good will triumph over, over evil. And it could, have, it could have been that John Hench and Walt Disney chose an, an entirely different theme, but that's the one that they, that they chose. And I think that's why, it's, that's why Disneyland and the Disney theme parks have been so successful, because that's something that resonates with all of us. Right. And that was definitely, as we've, Craig and I have talked about on previous episodes, that that was... Walt Disney's outlook on life, that that everything was going to be okay. The future was very optimistic. So it's, it's, as you said, it seems only natural that that was the overlying theme in his park. So. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you also have to remember, though, that Disney have lots of other different theme parks. And it's only the castle parks that really pin down that reassurance theme. Other, the- other, Dis- other Disney theme parks have entirely different themes. It's like Epcot, for example, instead of reassurance, um, it tries to inspire you. And that, that's a, I think that's a, that's a really um, amazing theme to have for a park, to be able to go into a place and, and, and think, wow, this is what I could do. There's, there's, so much, there's so much that we've accomplished and there's so far we can go. And then Disney's Animal Kingdom has themes of the um, power, the power of nature, and the call to action to care about the world, and these are these are emotional things that we identify with. It's it's not just the scenery. Good, yeah, and I want to explore later on in our conversation about the the difference that you know what happened when when the Imagineers sat down to design Epcot. Because it was their first non-castle Disney park, so so we'll we'll t- explore that a little. Because um, I know you're very well versed in in sort of the Disney history of all that. Now, when we're talking about theme parks, a, a thing that goes on in Southern California is a couple years ago, Knott's Berry Farm started a campaign claiming they were the first theme park. Yet. Um, We've always, I've always believed that Disneyland was the first theme park. So we have you here, David, to settle this once and for all on Connecting with Walt. Who has the rightful claim to the title? And we're recording this. Austerity. So <laughs> well, who is the world's first theme park? Well, I have to say, I, I can't give you an answer to that. Mm-hmm. Because really, it depends on how you define the terms. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, the two contenders are Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland, but there's also a third contender, and that's uh, Santa Claus Land in Indiana, which later became uh, Holiday World. Mm-hmm. And they each have different reasons for it. Now, 
Personally, I would say I would give the claim, if I had to, I would give it to Disneyland. Um, and really that's because a lot of people might not know this, but the, very, the term theme park wasn't coined until four years after Disneyland opened. The, the term theme park wasn't used until 1959. And before that, Disneyland was just called an amusement park. But the very first time that was used, it wasn't even in Disney literature. It was in, 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 it was in an industry handbook that was looking to sell all different types of rides. And it was saying that some people might want to start up theme parks like Disneyland. And I think because Disneyland... Um, kind of originated that term the, the term was coined to describe Disneyland that's why I'd give it to Disney oh well that, that's that's good enough for me <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to take that Nosbury Farm sign down at some point that's right who's got a ladder as long as also along with that sign up at Universal Studios uh, Orlando about Miss Mythos being um, the number one of the number one restaurants <laughs> so um since I think that's a bit dated. Um, anyway, well, in your book, Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment, you, you, you detail the process for designing, uh, working on a theme design project. So I, I don't know if you can give us sort of the, uh, you know, the 50,000 foot overview of, of that process, because I, I was stunned at how, how remarkably detailed it is and how lengthy it is. So, I don't know if you can sort of go through it with this because I think most of us, especially those of us who grew up watching Walt Disney on television when he would take us behind the scenes, uh, I think we all thought that, you know, there was Mark Davis sitting there designing the whole attraction and, and drawing everything out. And then maybe they gave it the Exitensio or, or the Sherman Brothers to write a song for it. And then they handed it off for it to be constructed. It's, off, it's clearly much more complex from reading your book. So I don't know if maybe you can come up with like a hypothetical kind of project and sort of walk us through what, what goes into planning a themed attraction. Well, absolutely. Like you have to remember that these are multi-million dollar attractions. Like some of them are, if you're going to build a new theme park, that can be over a billion, that could be up to four or $5 billion. Um, and so the techniques that go into um, construction all apply to theme park design as well. They're just appended with some extra, uh, extra um, design stages before construction that make it a bit more magical. But basically, we have to start with the design team. And there are, there are um, I think, four key people that you'll find on a, on a design team. Now, the first one is the client. So this is the person that goes to the design company and says, I want a new attraction built. Um, and in the case of Disney, this is um, Disney Parks and Resorts. So Disney Parks and Resorts will be, the, will be the client, and they will go to Walt Disney Imagineering and say, we would like a new ride. So you can imagine this is the, the late 60s. Um, Michael, you are the current head of WED Enterprises, as it was at the time, and Parks and Resorts have just come to you to say, we want a new ride. Now, you in that, in that situation are the executive so the executive is the person who is looking out for the creative integrity of the project from the design side. Now, now I have a question. Do they, is that how vague they are? They just say, we want an attraction. Or maybe they do it differently now than in the 60s. I don't know. But, or do they say, we want an attraction based on 
and we want it in this land and we want it to be a boat ride or a, a, a roller coaster ride or, or do they just give them carte blanche? It really depends. Um, sometimes they will just be allowed to have free reign and just come up with all different ideas. But sometimes they will say a, a theme park might be losing um, teenagers, for example, or um, adults might not be having as much fun in the park. And so they recognize that there are these target audiences that they need to address. Or perhaps they've got a new intellectual property. So a new movie's come out and it's really popular. And so the parks may realize that, oh, we want a ride based around this attraction. Or in some cases, an old attraction might be closing, but they still have that ride system that they want to do something new with. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it really changes. It, it can be almost anything. Okay. Um, so then when you, when you start on this design project, the two key people are the director and the producer. And this is, this is just like film. Films will have a director and a producer. So the director is also known as the creative director or the art director, depending on the company. That's the person who is concerned about the creative, the creative design of the park. That's the Mark Davis. That's the Tony Baxter. But working alongside them is the producer. And like I said, these are these these are design teams that have dozens, even hundreds of people. So there's a lot of organization that needs to go into it. There's budgets that need to be handled. There's research that needs to be uh, undertaken. And that's what the producer, producer does. The producer produces all of the, the business planning and everything to allow the director to focus on the creativity. And you might recognize that dynamic of creative and business mind in Walt Disney and Roy Disney as well. Exactly. Yes, we've talked about that. How they um, how they balanced each other out, and exactly. were, and were both geniuses in their own right to create, you know, the the entertainment empire that they did. Yeah. Um, so then, what happens is they put together the design team, and now what people might not realize is theme park designer isn't really a job title. It's kind of a job category. And there are 140 different disciplines that go into theme park design. And that can be everything from illustration to R&D to media design to costume design to audio design to painting to um, planning to architecture. To there's, there's loads. There's that, the 140. That's, that's a lot. And, and the, the producer and the director will work together to pull together a team that works well for the type of attraction that they're going to create. Then the actual design process itself, or process, or should, I, should I say, should, should Americanize it? Oh, no, because I can tell you right now, I'm going to hear all about how wonderful your accent is. So, <laughs> <laughs> we will have a lot of young ladies writing it. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep with, my, with, with the English accent. Um, although I have to say, that there is one word that I do say the American way. I, I always now say progress instead of progress, which is how I should say it. Mm -hmm. And that's purely because of Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard that name since I was a kid, so I thought that's how it was pronounced. I didn't realize I was, I was doing something wrong. Well, it's like I think most of us say Caribbean, except when we talk about Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so where was I? So the, the, design, the design process. Um, really, there are, about, there are about eight stages which are split across three design segments. Uh, and those segments are design, delivery, 
and operation. So design is where you put it on paper. Delivery is where you build it in reality. And operation is once you've opened the attraction. Um, so let's go back. If I go back to the example of late 60s, Magic Kingdom, we're going to do a Magic Kingdom. Uh, the parks have just come to you, Michael. They want a new Fantasyland attraction. Um, they want it based around uh, a, a, classic, a classic Disney film. This is where we begin the very first design phase, which is Blue Sky Design, which is where you come up with as many ideas as you can. Um, you don't critique them. You just come up with as many as you can. What Disney films would you want? Oh, what? Well, my favorite is Pinocchio, but there already is one. <laughs> so how about Bambi? Bambi? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, uh, well, as many different ideas as possible. So we could have 101 Dalmatians. We could have Sleepy Hollow. Uh, we could have Sleeping Beauty. Um, oh, you know, Sleepy Hollow, because I think there actually was going to be one in the Magic Kingdom, and then it got um, canceled. Well, yeah, actually, there's a really interesting story about that. So if, you, if, we go, if you remember how I said there's a difference between the manifestation theme and the dramatic theme, it's really interesting when they went to design Fantasyland for the Magic Kingdom because they, they knew they had these old, uh, the, the original Fantasyland dark rides with uh, Sleep Snow White and Peter Pan and Mr. Toad. But the reason they chose those three is because they wanted one, one attraction to be wild and crazy, which was Mr. Toad. They wanted one attraction to be scary, which was Snow White. And they wanted one attraction to be magical, which was Peter Pan. And when they went to build the Magic Kingdom, they wanted that mixture of dramatic themes, uh, how, you're, how you're supposed to feel. They wanted to keep that. But the manifestation theme, they realized they could mix that up a bit. So that's when they were going to do a Sleepy Hollow ride. But that Sleepy Hollow ride was going to be the scary attraction instead of Snow White. Mm-hmm. And they were going to have... Um, 101 Dalmatians, was it 100? Yeah, which was going to be the Wild and Crazy ride. And they were going to have um, Sleeping Beauty as the magical ride. But various things happened to go back to the original lineup. But it's really interesting that that's what they consider. Yeah, we had Rolly Crump on the Disneyland show and he talked about that. And that also there was going to be a Mary Poppins um, ride. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so after we go through blue sky design, that's when we go into concept design. So this is where we take uh, a handful of the attractions. So we might have made a list of, I don't know, two dozen uh, rides that we wanted to build. And now we go and think, OK, we're going to pick a couple of these. We're going to pick, uh, what do you say? You wanted Bambi. You wanted Sleepy Hollow. And, and we'd look at those in more detail. So we'd begin to think about, okay, well, what kind of ride scenes would we see in this attraction? What type of ride system would it be? Would it be a, would it be a bus bar ride like Snow White? Would it be a, a suspended ride like Peter Pan? Um, how would we want the guests to feel? How much space would we have? Um, all, all different things like that. And we, we plan out a couple of different ones of these because at all of these stages, you have to go back to the client and ask, what do you think, what, what are you interested in, what works for you? And like I said before, the, the operator might be working from different things. They might realize that, um, that we want this attraction to appeal to young children. So that's my, that might be why they go for the Bambi ride instead of the Sleepy Hollow ride. Mm-hmm. Um, So the next stage is feasibility, which is where we look at these attractions and think, okay, are they feasible? 
Can we build them for the designated budget? Can we build them in the time frame that we have? Are they going to have enough a, a, um, capacity to be able to make sure enough people can ride them? And loads of different studies go into all of this. There might be a new technology that you want to put in the ride, and you're going to have to build that up, even at full scale, to make sure it works properly. Are the illusions that you're going to put, put in going to work? All of this has to be checked. Um, to, to see what will to, to see whether you, you can do what you're planning to do. Um, at the end of that, that's finally when you choose which attraction you're going to go for, and then you head into the delivery segment. So we've done all of the design, we've figured out um, what we want to achieve. Now we have to try and achieve it. And the first part of that is schematic design, which is where you go into some very specific detail, deciding exactly what is needed. And exactly where it's going to go. Um, so you have to decide what is your ride vehicle going to be? Um, how many people is it going to hold? How big are all of the rooms, the, all of the scenes in the attraction going to be? Um, where's the queue going to go? How big does the building need to be? What color paint are you going to have? All of these things have to be decided uh, in, in very specific detail. Um, after that, you then go into design development. Uh, and in that stage, all of that stuff is put on paper. So that's where you put together the blueprints, uh, the, the color plans, the scripts for what you want the dialogue to be. Uh, all of that has to be put on paper so you can send it out for the next design phase, which is build. And that's where you send out the, the plans to the person you've hired to construct it. And they're going to they're gonna fabricate the, the project elements you need. They're going to construct the buildings. And they're going to install everything so it works. And that takes, a long, that, that takes a long time. But after that, when you finally built it, you can then go into the third design segment, which is operation. Uh, and you hand over the, the, the completed project to the operator. Uh, and you have your, your opening day. And so people have to remember that Walt Disney Imagineering design the attractions, um, but they don't operate them. And this is what happens with a lot of design companies. There will be a lot of independent design companies who are hired by a theme park to design an attraction. But once they've built it and handed it over, they don't have, they, they don't have any involvement in the attra that attraction unless the park invites them back to maybe do a refurb or, or, or something along those lines. Um, except for one thing, and that's the very last design phase, which is sustainment. And that's where you have to ensure that the creative integrity of the project is maintained after opening. So for a small company, that might be, be putting together a theme book, which is a book which details all of the design decisions that were made, why they were made. Um, because you have to remember, it might be 10 years down the line and someone goes, oh, you see that wall over there? It's fading a bit. We should, we should paint it. But then they might ask, well, what color should we paint it? And there might have been a reason that the, the, the original designers chose that color 10 years ago. And without that theme book, without something documenting why the decisions were made, um, that would be lost. Uh, and so that's, that's something that the designer has to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've even seen uh, some of Alice Davis's uh, theme books where she even has swatches of the material for the costumes and everything just attached to it. Yeah, even even the types of glitter and, and everything. Yeah. Now, now, for attractions that have backstories that the, the guests may not know about, are the backstories included in these theme books? 
Absolutely. Um, a theme book will typically, um, it'll begin with like, like maybe a, a quick elevator pitch of what the attraction is like. But then the second, the second category will be the story, everything that happens to you in it, but then also everything that went on, uh, the backstory, as you say, everything, even if it's not communicated to the guest in the ride, the designer will include it. Because if anyone wants to make changes in the future, they'll want to know um, why certain decisions were made. And this is kind of like if you ever hear about actors um, or authors of books um, talking about plotting out backstories for their characters, even if they're not put in the book themselves, this is exactly the same with designers. We need to know why things are the way they are so that they make sense to us Mm -hmm. and also make sense to other people. So now, let's say that our attraction, the, the the Sleepy Hollow attraction, is installed. It's up and running. How how does the park determine it's successful? Is it simply by the length of the queue, or is there a more of a formula that goes into this? Well, the length of the queue is probably the worst way of determining the the success of an attraction, unless no one goes to it. That's a pretty bad sign. <laughs> um. But really, if you think about the length of the queue, um, you might have an attraction which only has two, only takes 200 people per hour. So it's THRC. It's theoretical hourly ride capacity is 200 people. But if a thousand, want to, a thousand people want to go on it, that queue is going to be huge. And you, might, you probably think, wow, that's a really successful attraction. But if you compare that to an attraction like Pirates of the Caribbean, that attraction's THRC is 4,000 people per hour. So if you have, even if you have 4,000 people that want to go on it every hour, there won't be a queue. And so just going by the length of the queue is a really bad indicator because it doesn't take into account the attraction's capacity. And so because of that, there's a lot of other different ways you have to uh, figure out whether it's been successful. Some of those might be guest satisfaction surveys. So we designers will actually go and ask the guests, what did you think of it? What was your favorite ride in the park? It might be attendance growth. It might be how many more people come to the theme park because they've heard this new awesome attraction is opening up. It might be the percentage of the gate, which is what percentage of people that go to the theme park that day wanted to go on the ride. Um, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of different ways of, of doing it. Um, one of the most all-encompassing, though, is the cost per guest satisfaction. So basically, what my, um, one of my friends calls this um, uh, the, um, the, the, the happiness per buck, which <laughs> is basically you look at how much you spent on that ride, then you compare that to how many people in your park think that the ride is awesome. You just you do what they they would rate it nine out of ten, ten out of ten, and from that you can calculate whether it was worth it. Huh. Okay, interesting. So now, when now we we've sort of focused on designing theme park attractions and all that, but actually, people that design theme parks they're not just limited to designing lands or attractions. Uh, what other types of projects do theme designers work on? Well, really, you can apply theme design to almost anything. And and this is what a lot of the uh, independent design companies do. Um, But even even Disney, even Universal, even Merlin will do this. So if you look at um, a hotel at a resort, that'll be a themed hotel. If you look at a, a cruise ship, you can make that a themed cruise ship. You can have a restaurant and make that into a themed restaurant. 
there's all different sorts. There's stores, there's water parks, there's events, there's exhibits. There are even hospitals where designers will volunteer their time to go and theme a ward, a children's ward, for example. So it's a much more pleasant place to be. Yeah, so so people who are interested in this, they, it, this as a career, don't have to limit themselves to just Disney parks. There's so much that you can apply this, you know, your your expertise and talent too. I know that uh, some folks associated with um, Walt Disney Imagineering, they were either current or past cast members, helped design the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. So, um, so there's all kinds of things. I know when I went on a tour Disney World a while back, they had the layout for a museum exhibit that they were um, helping design. So for Japan, so so it's interesting. Now, now let's say that an attraction has stood for generations, largely unchanged. How does I don't know the theme park manager or the designers determine if money should be invested in updating or plussing that attraction? Or simply closing it down or, you know, or replacing it with another? Well, that's a big question. Um, It it really depends on the attraction itself. Um, So sometimes there might be uh, a new attraction that you want to put in the park and there's no space for it. So you have to take up the space of something that's already there. Or there might be a new technology that comes out and, and the designer realizes, oh, we could do something even better with this, this attraction if we just change a few things. A major part of it is that you have to remember that theme parks are a business and the cost of running all of these attractions uh, can get really high to the degree that sometimes if you want to put in a new attraction, which is going to cost a lot of money to run, you might need to close an older attraction so that uh, so that you, you have the money to be able to do so. And, and typically that'll be, well, which attraction isn't getting the attendance that it wants used to, which attraction isn't getting guest feedback that it wants used to. Um, and, and sometimes there will be a way of doing something new with it. And, and sometimes it's, it's, a good idea if people aren't going to see it to use that money for something that they will go and see. Okay. And so that's why Disneyland no longer has country bear jamboree, but we do have Winnie the Pooh (laughs) 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 and and, and our Disney worlders can say the same about Mr. Toad. (laughs) But you've you've got to recognize that the, 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 the the amount of people that love Winnie the Pooh is, is huge. And if, if Disney have that property, they they should put it in the park if they can do something good with it. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah. And and well, and that's that 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 brings up another question, and it relates back to something you stated before, where when Disneyland first opened, sixty percent of the rides were not based on intellectual property. Um, now, and I don't know if this is well. Of course, with Universal, everything's based on intellectual property, but it seems now with Disney, and I don't know if this is true in other parks. Um, Everything is based on intellectual property and things that were based on an original idea like Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. It, it seems like we just don't see those anymore. And is, is, that just, is that just economics? Is that the way it's going to be in the field of theme park design? That everything has to have its built-in audience, you know, being based on a film? Um, well, we shouldn't ignore that even Disney have been opening things like uh, Mystic Manor and Big Grizzly Mountain in the past few years, which aren't 
based on existing intellectual property. But really, when you look at it from the designer's point of view, a, a designer needs to hit a bunch of different targets when they're going when they're trying to convince an operator to give them the money that they need to build a new attraction. And it might be that it needs uh, it, it it needs to have a ride system that's that's going to be guaranteed to work. So if you if you want to do a new a brand new ride system that's never been tried before, that's a bit risky, uh, and that might decrease your chances of it being built. Uh, if, if you want to push the budget a bit more and add an extra 20% onto the construction budget, that's a bit risky and the client might not allow that. But if you can tie that into an intellectual property, which has been proved to work, that people love it, that's a little, that decreases the risk a little bit for both the designer and the operator. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons that they like to do it. But another reason as well as that, though, is differentiation um, anyone could do a Pirates Land, but only Disney could do a Pirates of the Caribbean Land. And that's a really important thing. Disney could do something that's, um, th- that is uh, just, um, uh, pi- just pirates with no names or places with no names. But if they go with Jack Sparrow and Davy Jones, there's, there's an identification there that people know about these stories and they want to go to these places. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a benefit, that's a draw that a regular non-Pirates of the Caribbean pirate land wouldn't have. And of course, there's a balance to this. We want to have um, brand new stories that work just for the theme park. A good example I give is that imagine if you were a movie studio that only made films based on books. Now, you might have some really good films like um, like Harry Potter, but at the same time, you're going to be missing out on making a load of films which are perfect for cinema alone that wouldn't work in in written format and it's the same with the theme park um some rides are brilliant if they are based on existing films and tv shows uh and books but other attractions are really good if they're just custom made for the theme park okay and now and you brought up harry potter and you know we saw and there was a section in your book that i found really interesting about brands and how and how sometimes parks go beyond their brand. They go outside their brands. We saw this with Universal where they bought the rights um, for Harry Potter, even though they didn't produce those films. And we've seen what's been somewhat a little controversial when Disney purchased Star Wars and Marvel because people said, well, they have enough of their own intellectual property they've created. Why go out and purchase these franchises and now build attractions based on those instead of on their own fairy tales and all that. But you make a really good case in your book for why theme parks should reach out beyond their brands. Yeah, the, the, I mean, there are quite a few reasons for this. Um, I think the one that uh, appeals to me most. I, well, actually, let me just, I'll, I'll switch this, uh, to something else for, for a second. You have to remember that in, in the 80s, when Star Wars got added to the theme park, and later in the 1990s, when Indiana Jones got added to the theme park, they weren't Disney at the time. But nowadays, if I went to Disneyland and couldn't go on the Indiana Jones adventure, I would be so upset. It, it, it really suits it. And, and that's the important thing. It, it doesn't matter if it was if the, the, the property was made in-house, as long as it matches 
the manifestation, the, the dramatic theme, sorry, of the theme park. Now, Star Wars really makes you feel it really makes you feel good about life. It makes you think that good will triumph over evil. And that's exactly what Disneyland does as well. That's that's there's a synergy there that, that can be that that can be built on. And Tony Baxter, who's the designer that was behind the original Star Tours and behind uh, the Indiana Jones adventure, uh, he said to a seven year old, a seven year old doesn't care whether it was Paramount that that, that produced Star Wars or that it was uh, 20th Century Fox that made Star Wars, uh, that made Star Wars. Sorry, they, they just they just know that they know the characters and they want to see the and the, for a seven year old to see those characters in the theme park is really magical, and 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 that's the thing that this intellectual property has. It it has the, we call the uh, designers call them cues, uh, C U E S cues, and the, these are like icons and and characters and places and events in the world that we know about and that we can hook into without um, it needing to be established in the park. If we see Darth Vader, we we know all about his history and where he's come from and what he's like, and that resonates with us a lot more than uh, than something that's that's made brand new okay yeah and then and i think disney's won over folks now with marvel and star wars <laughs> i i think you're right i the, i mean there there are some times where it, an ip wouldn't fit but i think disney are doing a pretty good job and and universal as well universal's um picking a lot of good ips like uh like harry potter and king kong and marvel which are huge right now. These are really cool um, worlds that we want to step into. And the theme park enables people to do that. It, it seems now, too, we're going through, we see attractions go through different trends. Um, for instance, original attractions that seemed like, you know, when Disneyland first opened were basically passive rides. We just experienced the attractions as the designers guided us through them, like, you know, Haunted Mansion and Pirates. But then there was a trend of interactive attractions there for a while. Um, at Disney parks, it was Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters, you know, Toy Story Midway Mania, Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor. Then the, the high-def video came into being that we saw like with uh, when they reimagined Alice in Wonderland at Disneyland or the Harry Potter attractions at the Universal Parks. And now it seems like the trend is going back to the passive rides again, like, um, you know, the Voyage of the Little Mermaid, um, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. So is there is there is it that these trends are just brief or do we do designers just stick with what's tried and true or? Or um, so what? So what does ha- what what is happening in the field? Well, really, it's because designers are constantly looking out for new things that they can bring into the theme park, and most often that's driven by, by technology. Um, so designers will be going to the aerospace in- industry and engineering and and finding out uh, what, what new technology is there, and then how could we adapt this for the theme park? How could we add a story to this so that it stops being just technology and becomes something magical. Um, 
And but but in in addition to that though, there are also just the, there are just tastes in 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 um, what people like and what the designers like and what the operators like. Um, and I actually I have a section in my, my book about this. Um, if you look at like the theming of of Disneyland in the nineteen fifties, that's very different to the theming of Disneyland in the two thousands. And the theming of Epcot for example, is very different to the theming of Universal Studios because they're all trying to achieve all these different things. And because of that, they'll go to different sources to be able to achieve this. So it, it, it varies a lot, but it's it's always about doing something new. Even with the passive rides, for example, they will try, designers will try and bring in uh, new technology like the, the animatronics in The Little Mermaid are, are amazing Um new technology there and and even the the seven dwarf mine train the, those swinging carts are, are a really cool idea that's something brand new uh so it's it's very people don't want to repeat the past they're, they're always trying to look for something new and if a, a lot of different designers are all kind of battling to be the very first person to do that maybe you'll get a few attractions at once which are all kind of similar in that way okay and Another thing that's sort of controversial and I think amongst guests is, you know, there are parks like the Disney Parks, Universal Parks that have, they're in California and they're in Florida and an attraction will be popular on either Florida or California and then they'll build it in, you know, the the other park, the counterpart park. Some people are thrilled because it means, oh good, it's in the park we go to. Others are disappointed because they say, well then, why should I go to another park because they're duplicating them? So, so from a from a theme park designer's point of view, what's the pros and cons of duplicating attractions? Well, this is designers call this lifting or cloning, or sometimes they call it rollout. And this is this is where you 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 create the plans for an attraction that could be built anywhere. And there are obviously some obvious. Uh, benefits of that if you're designing uh, uh an attraction for two different parks simultaneously then that means that your design budget can be um it is split in two um and that means that you've got more money to do better effects for example if, I, if i'm building uh, one ride in in california and one ride in, Flo- in ride in florida uh the operators of both of those parks will be pooling their money and that means you could get a better attraction than you could if it was just going to appear in one park um there might be attractions and it, it, it's all a balance but there might be attractions that are so successful that there is a demand for them in in, in the other resort i think I, i'm sure you'll know the story about how pirates of the caribbean wasn't originally in the magic kingdom right. and the the imagineers at the time thought that well we're so close to the caribbean here it won't have as much mystique as pirates do to those in california but but the how good the how good Pirates of the Caribbean was, everyone in Florida knew about it and were disappointed when it didn't appear there. So they had to build it. And I, I know if I went to a, a Disney resort that didn't have Pirates of the Caribbean nowadays, I, I'd be upset. So that's an attraction that you want to be able to put in into multiple parks. Right. Some attractions become franchises themselves. Exactly. Like like the Haunted Mansion, It's a Small World, Peter Pan, uh, and Pirates. So, so they're just expected to be in, in 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 these in this example in Disney parks. 
but I imagine other parks have their own franchises. I, it sounds like Universal, the, Harry, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is now its franchise that they're going to have to build in every Universal park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but there, there is even more than that as, uh, as well. Um, there are even independent design companies that will create franchise attractions that aren't for any specific park uh, at all. Um, so there might be some independent family-owned park uh, in the middle of the countryside in the United Kingdom. And they don't have the money to create a big dark ride uh, by, by themselves. But if they go to this company and pool their money with a bunch of other theme parks around the world, maybe one's in America, one's in Canada, uh, one's in Germany, together they can design an attraction that they can each put into their park that would be much better than if they were trying to go it alone. Huh, interesting. So, so, and that allows them to compete with the larger parks as well. Exactly, yeah. Now, another, another trend that we're seeing is, you know, like when Disneyland first opened in, in one of their realms, like Fantasyland, there were different attractions all based on fantasy but didn't really relate to each other. Now we're seeing with, you know, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Cars Land, uh, and all that where – the whole land is based on one intellectual property. Um, is is this a current trend? Is it, or is this the new direction of themed entertainment? And there are there risks associated with having a whole land based on one intellectual property? Well, what you've identified there is a thing called land theme, and that can be split into two types. So you have amalgamated lands, um, which put their focus on the dramatic theme and specific lands which put their focus on the manifestation theme. So like you said, Fantasyland, that's an amalgamated land based around the dramatic theme of fantasy. And Pinocchio, which is, what, Italian? And uh, Snow White, which is German? Uh, and uh, Dumbo, which is uh, American, or 1940s American? Th- these don't fit very well in terms of a manifestation theme, but they do fit together as part of a dramatic theme. They all make you feel like the fantastical is possible. Um, and that's, that's one way of, of um, grouping attractions together. Adventureland does the same. It's got um, Victorian Africa. It's got 1940s um, India. It's got uh, Polynesia. All of these different things that all together can, can combine towards the dramatic theme of adventure. Now, if you compare that to specific lands, specific lands will take just one place and time and stick exclusively to that. So like you say, Harry Potter is, is just Hogsmeade uh, in, in contemporary times. And that is becoming more common. Um, people might be surprised here that the very first time Disney did this was actually – it wasn't Cars Land. Uh, it wasn't Toy Story Land. It was actually back in 2001 with Mermaid Lagoon at Tokyo Disney Sea. That was the first ever land that Disney did that was all based around one film. And in that case, it was The Little Mermaid. Um, but going even – Further back than that, lots of other theme parks did some did the same thing earlier. Universal Studios did it in 1990 with Amity, which is based around Jaws. And even before that, Knott's Berry Farm did it with uh, Snoopy uh, as part of Camp Snoopy. And th- there are benefits and, and, and drawbacks to both of them. But there, are, like you say, there are a lot more specific lands being built. And really, 
I actually take that as a really good sign. Now, I'd be upset if amalgamated lands disappeared entirely, but but what specific lands allow you to do is rather than just having one pirate attraction in Adventureland, you can make an entire pirate's land. And I, I love pirates. That's probably my, my favorite theme. So the ability to not only go on Pirates of the Caribbean, but then to be able to go into a pirate tavern or to be able to go and explore a pirate island and have that experience last not just the 15 minutes of a ride, but maybe an hour or two of a land, that, that really appeals to me. And because, there are, because theme parks are doing so well and there are so many theme parks around the world, Theme parks can latch onto these different themes and really go for them, really do something special with them. So is, is it Shanghai Disneyland that's supposed to have a whole land based on pirates? It is. I, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> so, And I assume you, you already have your own designs for a pirate-themed land. I, I think I think I designed a pirate land when I was about five years old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> And then I think of what I was doing at five, and you're designing theme, <laughs> themed lands, you know. Well, I don't know. I don't know how original it was at the time. But. <laughs> so, now, um, now on connecting with Walt, we're approaching, as I said earlier in the show, the time period in Disney history where we're going to start talking about the efforts to construct the Magic Kingdom. So, after building Disneyland, did the designers take a different approach? when they sat down and said, okay, we need to begin working on designing the Magic Kingdom? Well, you have to imagine the, the, the culture at Disney at the time. So Walt's dream had been for the city. And so a lot of the Imagineers who had been it, – it's crazy when you think about it. These, these individuals that had been designing um, little bus bar rides um, through Snow White scary forests were now being asked to design an entire city of the future. So they were looking at loads of different influences that just didn't occur to them when they were designing Disneyland California just a, a, decade, a decade or two before. Um, so there was a lot – going in their mind that was that was very different now like some of the decisions they made were because of um the new culture that they were going into so in Cali- in florida sorry they had a lot more land so that changed a lot of the design decisions they were going to make um they had some new intellectual property um which f- that changed uh the design decisions they were made for like twenty thousand leagues under the sea um they were able to do an entire attraction around that that they, they didn't have the time to do at Disneyland. They were able to look at all of the mistakes that Disneyland made and correct for them. They could they realized that there were going to be loads more people coming to Florida that weren't going to go to California, so they could make the walkways wider, for example, or, or change the types of food that they, they served in the restaurants. All of these different things were on their mind when they were going to design something. And these are the design decisions that go into any theme park that um, is, is being built from scratch. If you look at um, Shanghai, Disneyland, all of the decisions that they made that go into there are very different than decisions they were gonna, that, that go into making a park in, in, in Florida. Interesting. So, so, and so let's say you, I know you're familiar with the attractions that never got built at Disney World. Is there one that, let's say you were the head of the parks for one day, which which attraction would you green have? Would you greenlight? Uh, you you mean off the attractions that got cancelled? Yes. Oh, um, 
Can, can I cheat and go back to those Fantasyland dark rides? Sure, sure. Because I, I would have loved to have had um, a Sleeping Beauty dark ride and uh, a Sleepy Hollow dark ride and a Mary Poppins dark ride in Fantasyland. I, 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 I just think they were magical. And, and, and it's, it's really interesting, actually, as well. If you, if you look at the, the decades that different Imagineers um, were kind of at the, at, at the top of their game uh, in in, in, uh, um, in terms of uh, how long they've been at the company and so on. It's very interesting that when the first gener- generation of Imagineers began to retire uh, at around the time Epcot opened, Epcot was kind of their, their last big project, and then they thought, okay, now it's time to retire. As soon as the second generation of Imagineers came in, they kind of looked back at some of the rides that existed when they were then when they were little kids going into Disneyland, and they kind of went, you know what? I want to design one of those rides. I mean, we've had fun helping the original Imagineers design Epcot. We want to go back and design some of those fun storybook dark rides. And I think that's why Pinocchio's uh, the, the Pinocchio ride at Disneyland got built because the second generation of Imagineers finally got to make the decisions and decided. We enjoyed that so much. We want to build one too, and I think I would be exactly the same if I was in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, and maybe that's one of the reasons we're they're building international parks is because it gives them that opportunity to build to, to build those attractions that they loved, but put their own spin on it. I, absolutely, I, I think you're right because if you you have to look back at. Um, Disneyland got built up over decades and decades and decades. And that meant that even if the perfect space for one attraction would have been here, there's, there isn't room for that there. So we're going to have to build it over here. But when you go and build another theme park from scratch, you get to make those, you get to correct those and make it um, even even better every single time. Now, you brought up Epcot Center um, earlier in the show, and this was the first Disney park without a castle that the Imagineers designed and built, and you said, you know, that had a totally different theme, as you mentioned. How did they approach this? Because, you know, there was always the Epcot, the city. And so, so they, when they were told, okay, we've got to start working on this, I mean, how did they get themselves going? Well, really, the Imagineers invented a whole new archetype of theme park when they designed Epcot. Um, and by archetype of theme park, I mean, there, there's a couple of different styles of theme park that you see repeat quite a lot. So Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, they're a type of theme park called an excursion park. An excursion park is it pulls together a bunch of diverse lands, which are pretty loosely related to each other, but they're all really fun places to go and pulls them all into one place together. And that's your theme park. And Islands of Adventure is another example of this. Islands of Adventure has got Marvel Superhero Island and Jurassic Park and Harry Potter and Dr. Zeus. And they don't really go together, but there are really cool places. Uh, and I want to go to them. So let's put them all in one place and, and let's and open it up as a theme park. So that's an excursion park. With Epcot, though, they invented this thing called a Discovery Park. And a Discovery Park, instead of taking its inspiration from... Um, say, uh, from uh, uh, story films, Discovery Park takes its inspiration from documentary films. Um, 
so instead of trying to tell you these fantastical fictional stories, it tries to show you the the actual world you live in, and that that's that's a really different approach. So unlike the reassurance that uh, Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom was going to give you, Ep- Epcot was going to inspire you. It was going to educate you, and it was going to ha- uh, let you have fun whilst you did it. And it was really based on the World's Fairs and on um, exhibition and even museum design went into it. Um, And that entirely changed the approach that they took with attractions because they were trying to show the real world. For example, let's say you wanted to create you want to create a, a, a China pavilion. Now, you could just you could recreate. The Great Wall, I suppose. You could try and rebuild uh, rebuild a section of it to give you kind of some impression of what it was like. And that would be perfect for, a sto- for an excursion park, for a fictional story. But when you're trying to do the real thing, that doesn't really do it justice. And that's why Epcot relied a lot on film attractions, because they allowed people to see the real thing. And also it allowed uh, Epcot to constantly update things, or uh, that was the plan. Um, <laughs> so things wouldn't, they wouldn't grow stale and, and they could keep up with the cultures in a way that Disneyland doesn't need to do. Disneyland admits everything as a story. At Epcot, everything is real. That's, that's, yeah, that is interesting. And, and I always wondered why they relied so much on film. But um, you're right. If, if they had intended to update them every once in a while, they, they need to get going here. Uh, in, in in the France Pavilion, they now refer to the film as a nostalgic look back at our <laughs> anyway. But now, I I think now for our younger dizzers who are listening, if they had any desire to be a theme park designer, I have a feeling after listening to you, they want to know a lot more about how to become a theme park designer. So you talked a little about how you, um, how you got on that road, but if, let's say you were, uh, you were advising a younger person as to how they could reach this goal. And what kind of, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of education, you know, practical experience, personal experience, things like that? Um, well, I have to go back to what I said before and say that theme park designer isn't a specific job title. It's a category of job titles. So almost anything you can think of can be applied to theme parks. So the best thing to do is to find out what you love and just try and become one of the best at it. Um, and, and at some point, you'll be able to apply that to a theme park and be able to adapt your skill set. And even then, once you're inside a theme park company, you can go out and, and try different things. And you, you can um, start learning from other people in other disciplines and, and find out how they do what they do. Um, as well as that, though, you should... Um, you, you should look into industry organizations um, such as the Themed Entertainment Association and um, uh, the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. And these have really, really good um, student bodies, um, which will allow you to attend industry events and uh, interact with actual designers who can uh, give you advice uh, and look at the work you've done so far and give you comments and feedback uh, and, and hopefully um, guide you uh, to the job that is best suited for you one day. The only thing, though, is, is it, it's, it's quite difficult. You, you shouldn't try and aim just to be uh, a, a theme park designer. 
because the skill set that goes into theme park design can be applied to so many different things. It's better to find what you love to do and then find out what you can apply that to. I think that's excellent advice. What do you have a passion for? And then channel that passion, you know, into, you know, if, if if you have a passion for something, become an expert at it in the money and everything's going to follow. Uh, absolutely. So, and I think I also a, a really good piece of advice would be to look at my book as well. Well, I, actually, I was going to bring that up because in, <laughs> in your book, you know, you said there were 140 different disciplines within theme park design. And, and I could see someone saying, well, how would I ever learn about all these disciplines? Actually, your book covers them pretty well <laughs> in that if you want to learn about it, I mean, even when you talked about the design team, I mean, it, it is people, lighting gets into it. Um, Horticulture is part of the design team. I mean, things you'd never thought about, you know, is in there. M- music, um, all kinds of things are all part of a design team. So so I wanted to get, I want you to tell us a little more about your, your book, David, the, um, theme park design and the art of themed entertainment in that uh you know what is tell us about what we can find in it uh, how is it organized and and you know other other interesting topics well well on the on the back cover i i describe it as three things i i describe it as a handbook for the practicing designer Mm -hmm. i i describe it as a textbook um, for for the enthusiastic student, and I describe it as a behind-the-scenes guidebook for the interested fan. Mm-hmm. And really, I hope that I hit all three of those targets. Um, basically, the book is, it, it, as the title says, it's how to design a theme park. And it, it goes through pretty much everything that I know about theme park design, right the way from the history of theme parks um, up to the design process, um, up to the business model of the industry, um, then on to uh, theme and onto story and onto design techniques. And then I break it down for the final three chapters in applying those to theme park design, to land design, and to attraction design. And and it's this isn't just for I really want to reiterate this isn't just for people who want to become professionals in the industry. Uh, this is this book has a lot of layers to it, and you get you can what I found for myself is I can get into it. I can find whatever I'm interested in it. As David said, if you want to design your own theme park, this is the book for you. You'll know how to do it by the time you finish it. Um, you know. So it's definitely for people in the industry who want to get into the industry. It's an excellent book for uh, students, an excellent book. But for me, who just has sort of a, I'm just sort of curious how things work or what goes into it. There were just sections that I just sort of opened the book and I love fireworks. You know, I, I almost never miss the fireworks, you know, pageant at parks. David has a whole section in here on how they put a fireworks show together and which is all part, which is part, another part of theme design and, and even the different types of bursts and all that, which I found really fascinating. And um, or and I also I love parades. And again, there's a whole section in here. If you just like to know what goes into putting a parade together, th- there's a whole section in there, a whole chapter in there for you on it. So so even if you're just a casual guest there's there's things in this book that you will find interesting 
So. I, I'm really glad you said that because that, that's, that's definitely something I was aiming for. This, this isn't a book where you're going to read it from cover to cover. I, 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 don't, I think, you, I, I think it's, 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 there's so much there that I don't think that would be the best way of doing it. But I actually got advice from Tony Baxter, um, who's I, I think hopefully a lot of your listeners will know, know he, who he is. He, he certainly deserves to be known. And, and he said that, that I should break up the book as much as possible into subheadings and subheadings and, and just so that you can flick through and you can find something that you're, you're interested in. And then it will say, see page, blah, blah, blah. So then you can go on this trail and then learn about something else. And then that will lead you on another trail to learn about something else. Um, but they're really these are all quite small segments that together build up the entirety of the theme park industry. And it's 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 things like um, if you know about force perspective, for example, or about the berm around Disneyland or about the hub and spoke, the, the hub and spoke layout. Sorry, there, there are these um, concepts that a lot of theme park fans know about, but there's only maybe like half a dozen, maybe a dozen of them. My my book goes into a lot more than that. I have I think one my favorite section of the book for me is a is a section called design techniques, which lists fifty-two different techniques that designers use on parks, on lands, and on attractions. Um uh, that that do kind of they're basically like tricks of the trade that um that um most people don't realize when they're in the park. Um, Bob Gurr, who I, I hope a lot of your listeners know as well, he gave me um, a re- some really good feedback about the book. Um, he said that typically designers would only learn about this by word of mouth. It's only by being in the workshop while something is designed. That's, that's the only place you'd hear about it. But now he says for the first time these are all written down so anyone who has an interest in the theme park can learn about so if you if you know about say um you, you know about intrusions don't you michael i know a bit but i don't know if everybody listening does so so an intrusion is something that's outside the park that you see from inside the park that ruins it essentially so for example if you were in frontierland and you looked um up above the trees and you could see a big modern hotel tower that would completely ruin it, and that would be an intrusion. And so lots of designers will work in lots of different techniques in order to hide those. And I think some people know, will know about those. But do many people know about extrusions? Probably not. So, you, have you, have you, so an extrusion, an extrusion, that, this is something that I've, I've, I haven't read in, in any theme park design book that I've come across before. But an extrusion, if an intrusion is something outside the park you see in it, an extrusion is something inside the park that you see outside of it. And these are carefully controlled by designers as well. So, for example, Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland, California, was kept very small so that you wouldn't see it from outside the park. So that magic would be that that would 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 be withheld until you go up Main Street USA. But the Matterhorn, that is an extrusion. That's something that you see from miles away as you're going down the freeway, and you can spot on the horizon and go, "Oh, look, we're almost there." And that's the power of an extrusion. Sometimes they can be really good. Sometimes they can be really bad. But that's a design technique that not many people know about. But it is something that's in theme parks all the time. Yeah. So, so see, Disney Worlders, it's not that our castle is small. It is magical. 
<laughs> well, the, the thing is, Disney, uh, Disney Worlders should be really proud of how their castle was designed because it's designed to be an extrusion when you're at the transportation and ticket center. But as you get closer to the park, the castle disappears behind the train station. So it's no longer an extrusion anymore. So you still have that feeling of, of um, wonder as you go through the gates and up onto Main Street USA. You see it really far in the distance as an extrusion, which kind of whets your appetite. Then the middle ground, they hide it from you. And only then when you're close up to they reveal it again. It's, it's incredibly well designed. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I knew why it was an extrusion, but it didn't occur to me that as you approached the park, it... You couldn't see it anymore, but but and if also if you're somebody that enjoys doing the backstage tours like at Disney World and for me learning more how they do things makes it more magical for me. For others, learning how things are done removes the magic. But so if you like to know, if you're someone that says, "I wonder how they did that," David has a whole section on special effects. And that I found fascinating. Uh, sometimes how simply some of the special effects are carried out, and then others just how complicated it is. That, that just it, it was a lot of fun reading. So um, for me, that was worth the price of the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so David, we've been talking a lot about the book. So our listeners now they're ready to get it. So how can they purchase your book, Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment? Well, currently it's not quite out yet, but it's on the final stages of, of being complete. Um, so the best thing to do to find out when I finally do manage to get it published is to go to the Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash theme park design book. Or go to the Twitter page, which is twitter.com forward slash theme park design. Um, or both of those can be accessed by the website, which is www.themeparkdesignbook.com. Uh, and that's where I'll be putting all the uh, updates on uh, getting it finally completed. Um, but then I'm also post, uh, posting things like uh, endorsements that I've received from this, re- received for the book. So l- like I said, it's, it's perfect for a fan audience and it's perfect for a, uh, the, the, the student audience. But I, shouldn't, I should also say that this is a book that's being used by real theme park designers as well. Um, I've got a... a, a um, there are a bunch of theme park designers at Disney and at Universal and at, num- at numerous independent companies that uh, either have a copy of this book already, uh, one of the preview copies that I've sent out, uh, or they've already got an order for one of the final copies. And I've received a lot of really good feedback for, from the from these people. Um, I will say, as I said, the, the, the Disney theme park that, that hooked me when I was a child was Disneyland Paris. And, and Disneyland Paris was – the design of it was led by Tony Baxter, who uh, also designed Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. He designed the original Journey into Imagination. He did Star Tours. Uh, he did Splash Mountain. He, he, he's just a, a genius of designer. And I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud to be able to say that he wrote the foreword for my book. So he, he's, he's thought enough of it to be able to write these really kind words and a really – 
personal a really personal uh, story of his introduction to theme parks that opens my book. And then the conclusion of my book, the the, the afterword, is written by Joe Rohde, who is again is is a, a genius uh, designer. He was the lead designer on Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, he also led the design of Expedition Everest. He's uh, doing the Avatar uh, attractions that are, that are coming to Walt Disney World uh, in the next few years. Um, and again, he, he, he writes really kindly about my book. And then in addition, I've got a, a bunch of different uh, theme park designers um, who've thrown their endorsements in as well. Bob Gurr, uh, Garner Holt, who we mentioned earlier, uh, uh, and lots of people, not just Disney, but Universal Studios, SeaWorld, um, Merlin. This, this is a part, this is a book that should hopefully be useful to, to anyone who's interested in, in how theme parks are made. Excellent. And Craig is going to put um, links. All those links you mentioned will be in our show notes. And I'm sure um, once I hear the book is available, if you follow me on social media, um, you know, I'll post something that you can get the book. So, um, so David, thank you so much for joining us on Connecting with Walt. And I'm confident that you have inspired many, you know, fledgling theme park designers and those who want to learn more about the magic and mysteries behind their favorite theme parks. So oh, I, I definitely hope so. I think, like I said, the, the textbook didn't exist when I, I wanted to read it. So now that it does exist, I hope lots of other people will want to read it, too. I hope so. So, Craig... Are you the, oh, Craig, are you still, still there? Yeah, yeah no, I've just been taking <laughs> this all in. Uh, I'm, oh. It's great that I'm the first person who gets to hear this interview. I know, isn't it? Yeah. So, I know, I know. It's been it's been really fascinating. So I've enjoyed, oh, absolutely enjoyed it. So yeah, and what a this what a wonderful end to our January um, episodes. I know. You know. I'm, um, I know I, I've had a lot of fun putting together this month's Connecting with Walt. Oh, yeah, I think it's uh, even more information-filled, uh, way more action-packed than it was the first time around. So mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty pumped by everything that we got to cover mm -hmm. the past couple weeks. Yeah, definitely. But, but as our new favorite nighttime Disneyland parade asks, I gotta know my friends, when can we do this again? I never want this to end, I gotta know now, when can we do this again? So we will be back in April, and this time we're going to have five episodes, um, because we will be on every Friday in the month of April. The first episode's going to be on April 1st. So, so Craig, we're going to have to do something in keeping with that day's festivities. Yeah, well, uh, I, gosh, we're going to have to really brainstorm <laughs> on that one. We can either I make know. it really fun or it'll be fun. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do something fun. Yeah. We can do a show on Six Flags. Oh, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you do that. I'll just sit back and be the uh, engineer of it all. Well, we can have David back. I'm sure he's familiar <laughs> with Six Flags. Oh no, that's it. That's an amusement park. Remember, it's not a theme park. Yes, that's right. Outside mayor of expertise. Oh, and, and David, of course, can people contact you through all of the uh, social media links? Because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who will want you to record their message on their voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I can be I contacted through Facebook or Twitter, uh, or there's a contact form on my website as well. <laughs> Great. So thank you. And Craig, until we meet again in April, 
Where can our listeners hear your golden vocal tones? You can keep finding me on all of the podcasts that are offered on the Diz Unplugged podcast network, except for the Disneyland show, of course. Um, so to check out any of those episodes, go to disunplugged.com, and that's where you'll find me as well as uh, if you want to if you want to talk to me dry, directly, uh, go ahead and follow me on Twitter. I am Teleclaster on it. T-E-L-E-C-L-A-S-H-T-E-R. Uh, that's where you'll be able to actually say anything to me if you really want to. Um, and, of course, I'll have a link to that and all of our social medias in the show notes page. And you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park, the first theme park, you heard it here, the definitive answer, that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, and the Walt Disney Family Museum. So listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two-week shows from iTunes each Monday. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. And Craig, where can our listeners find these shows and more? Again, look for all that at disunplugged.com. Uh, once you hit the, the main page of the website, you will see uh, giant boxes that are are where you'll find all of our shows and the archived episodes that go way, way back. And uh, for especially for Michael's Disneyland-specific-oriented uh, episodes, we'll have links in the show notes to the, the most organized list of those. Thank you. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at michaelbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling. And Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. We'll see you in April. 